Industrial Security Podcast with Andrew Ginter and Nate Nelson. Sponsored by Waterfall Security Solutions. Welcome, listeners, to the Industrial Security Podcast. My name is Nate Nelson. I'm sitting with Andrew Ginter, the Vice President of Industrial Security at Waterfall Security Solutions. He's going to introduce the subject and the guest of our show today. Andrew, how are you? I'm very well. Thank you, Nate. Our guest today is Jim McGlone. He is the Chief Marketing Officer at Conexus. Um, Our topic today is a new book entitled Security PHA Review for Consequence-Based Cybersecurity. The book has two authors, Jim McGlone, uh, who's our guest today, and Edward Marzal, who is the CEO and President of Conexus, who was not able to join us on the podcast. So again, the book is Security PHA Review, and PHA is Process Hazard Analysis. It's it's a safety system term. Um, So what Ed and Jim are doing in their uh, their new book is they're connecting safety systems and cybersecurity. Let's listen in. So Jim, before we get into your new book, um, can you tell us a little bit about about where you're coming from? You know, you're at at Connexus. You've got uh, a long history in the industry. Um, can you talk about you know what led you to produce this book and and you know how it's connected to to Connexus? Sure. Um, I have I have spent my adult life um, studying industrial control systems, working with them, programming devices, selling them, uh, demonstrating to people how to solve very complex problems with them. Uh, So I've been involved in industrial control systems um, pretty much uh, since about 1980. The the firm, Conexus, if you will, is focused on uh, we provide independent consulting engineering services that are focused primarily on technical safety. Uh, and the technical safety we focus on is the process industries, uh, people who manage risk related to uh, chemicals or, or stored energy. Um, we look really hard at safety and security and um, the challenges that it presents for those companies and try to find really great uh, solutions uh, that are relatively easy to understand and relatively easy to apply. And so the topic of our conversation today is your new book, uh, Security PHA Review. What is the book and how did it come into being? Sure. So the book is um, uh, Ed Marzell and mine, uh, my attempt to actually uh, very simply convey an idea that we came up with as a result of a very large vulnerability assessment uh, that we were doing at a refinery in Italy. Um, I spent a month uh, at the site trying to define risk for the customer and using every methodology that has anything to do with cybersecurity. And um, I would call back and talk to Ed in the evenings. Those people who know Ed Marzell actually understand that he's a He's very good at, at risk analysis and, and a key part of the process safety uh, part of the ISA um, and driving process safety on a global basis. So I would call him and say, Ed, I'm trying to do, I'm trying to assess uh, where the greatest risk is and, and what it looks like for the customer and using 
the IT or using these traditional cybersecurity analysis was getting very frustrating because um, they were very focused on, um, you know, the IT architecture, for lack of a better term. And the whole time, uh, I, it wasn't uncommon for me to call in somewhere and I'd say, you know, just right across the street from right now, from me right this second, right across the, uh, um, the vehicle passageway on the refinery is a piece of equipment that I know can create a crater a quarter mile across. <laughs> and that seems like a much higher risk and much more important than whether or not a router is configured correctly. And um, we kept coming back to that and, and trying to make decisions about which pieces of equipment were worth protecting in the system. And at one point, um, we realized that if the site had had um, more of, of what's traditionally called process hazards analysis or HAZOPS, uh, that we could have analyzed their HAZOPS to determine what pieces of equipment were at the greatest risk and the threat vectors associated with them. So as a result of that, we came up with the idea, um, the core, if you will, to this book, which is in essence looking at, at the actual um, causes of, uh, so, so let's define, I'll go back up for just a second. So in a HAZOP, the intent, or in a process hazards analysis, the intent is to identify the things that you need to ensure are protected well um, operationally and, and with safeguards so that they don't malfunction and cause a problem either for the environment, for the asset itself, or for uh, life and limb. So once you identify those things, then you look through and, and you ask yourself, uh, what what could cause this to happen? And then are there any safeguards to protect it from happening? And, and depending upon the level of risk, you actually um, do things to change. And, and I'm going to change terms here. You do things to change uh, the likelihood of that thing happening um, and to basically make the equipment uh, more robust uh, to protect it from happening. So you look at things like the cause and then you look at the safeguards and um, and if you need better safeguards or more safeguards, um, you do it. In some cases, some cases um, you do things like accept the risk and you build exclusion zones and say, hey, look, you can't hang out near this piece of equipment because, right? And so that's in essence what we were looking at was because our company does both process safety and industrial cybersecurity, We've been frustrated by the cybersecurity side of the business for a long time. And, and when I got completely immersed in a project and didn't have a lot of distractions, it became very clear that applying some of the ideas behind cybersecurity to uh, an industrial process was either discounted by the customer or wasn't taking the right things into account. Um, and, and I'll give you a case in point of where we get really frustrated one of the big challenges that we face on a regular basis is, well, can I be hacked? Well, think about that question in general. So you have a piece of equipment um, or a lot of equipment running somewhere in your facility, and you assume that uh, with all the complexity of the networking and everything else, that somewhere or another it's connecting to the network, um, whatever you want to describe as the network, and and then that that network ultimately is probably connected to the internet. And so when people say, "Can I be hacked?" the challenge is yes, of course. Um, the next question becomes, 
what path are they going to take? How are they going to get in here? And so you end up with this almost infinite list of problems to solve. Um, and from an engineering perspective, and, and I used to ride a submarine. So from an engineering perspective, <laughs> I want to know what the greatest risks are. I want to know what the things are that I need to protect the most. And then I'll back up from there and make sure that I'm doing, you know, I have good hygiene about the other things. But for the things that are really, really critical, the things that are really expensive, the things that can kill, how do I, how do I keep them from doing stuff? So that's what we were looking to solve was how do we better um, define what risk is for an industrial operation? So if I can just summarize very briefly, what, what I heard there is um, Jim saying that, you know, he was, he was applying standard IT style cybersecurity risk analysis mechanisms to these physical processes. And they just, you know, those mechanisms just did not seem to be speaking to what he regarded as physically the greatest risks. And so this is the motivation for coming up with this, this other mechanism. And, you know, as you'll see later in his, in his presentation, he's, he's introducing the concept of process hazard analysis and HAZOPS. Uh, you know, process hazard analysis is sort of a, an umbrella term for lots of ways to assess physical risk. HazOps is one of the most important tools that you use to, to assess risk. And he was saying, you know, that mechanism seemed a much better fit to the kinds of risks, you know, and so, you know, of course, this is what he used as the foundation for the book. So the, the bottom line is the IT stuff didn't seem to be working. You know, he was very familiar with the safety stuff. And, you know, this was the, the genesis of, of where he's going for the rest of the presentation here. Now, what struck me there was his use of the word infinite, that there are unlimited numbers of attack paths that could potentially have to be plugged up. Um, Andrew, it seems to me that, that that might be an exaggeration, or am I wrong? Well, it's not much of an exaggeration. I mean, um, I'm familiar with, uh, uh, you know, a colleague here in town, and I, I live in Calgary, uh, Amanaza is an, an outfit that does, that produces tools for uh, uh, cyber attack trees. And um, I recall that, you know, some, uh, uh, one of their customers used the tool at a, uh, a conventional, you know, coal-fired power plant and found something like a billion and a quarter different attack paths for the, the you know, the systems that, that they were trying to defend. So, you know, a billion and a quarter is not infinite, but it's still, you know, ridiculously large. I mean, if you, if you ask me, the, the, the correct term is gazillion. And gazillion is mathematically defined as any unreasonably large number. So, yeah, there's a gazillion attack paths here. Could you give me some sense of how you get to a billion? Because you could say a billion, and I understand it, but that still seems like I, I'm having trouble picturing it. Yeah, so um, you know what you do. If, the the way that the the attack tree tool works is you identify your targets first. You identify the you know the the, the consequence you want to prevent, and then you say, okay, um, what conditions need to uh, exist for that that consequence? It, it, in my recollection, it kind of works bottoms up. Um, what conditions need to be met for that consequence to occur? Okay, um, you know how would you bring about those conditions? Well, you can do it, you know, here, or somebody could send a message there, or you could, you know, carry some malware in here, and so that you know, the tree starts to blow up, and you. So now you say, well, what's all of the ways that um, you could carry malware on a USB stick in? Well, it could come in on this machine, it could come in on a different machine and jump across the network. Okay, well, how many machines are there? You know, how many different 
opportunities are that they're being malware in. Well, it could come in by you know by a vendor coming. It could be a, a you know a malicious actor breaking into the facility. It could be all of these could be's. And you know, for each step of the process, until you get back to you know, here's a gleam in the eye, in 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 the mind of our attacker. Where do they start? I imagine you can work either way, but. Um, you know, top down or bottom up, but the branches add up very, very quickly. And that's one consequence. Look at your next consequence, repeat. Um, it, you know, the, you, you add up all of these branches and you get a very large number. Now, that's not to say there aren't certain choke points and people look at this attack tree and ask, you know, how do you use it? You try to find choke points where you can say, if I can defeat this piece of it right here, all of, you know, these, you know, hundreds of thousands of attack paths disappear. But if you just add up the number of possibilities, it's a huge number of possibilities. It really is. In your book, you, you know, it, based on this experience, you came up with a methodology that you call a, a security PHA. And, you know, you've, you've touched on sort of some, of, some of the elements of the methodology, but can you, can you give me a summary? What, what is the, the security PHA methodology? So what, um, it's a great question. So the, it's actually not complicated, which is a fantastic answer. Um, so let me walk through how you actually do one, if you will. So when you when you sit down, uh, I got asked a question last week um, at Texas A&M. Uh, the question was, uh, by process safety people was, um, should we be doing this security PHA review idea during a HAZOP? And my answer was, no, I don't think so. In most cases, it's going to complicate the HAZOP. So what what we want you to do in a PHA or a HAZOP is to focus specifically on um, the risk to uh, life and limb, the risk to the assets and the risk to the environment. It, adding in the cybersecurity part at that point seems like a complication we don't need to do because after the HAZOP's done, you can actually open the documents back up, go into them with a much smaller team and very quickly analyze every single one of the key scenarios that you're worried about for whether or not they're, they can be hacked. Andrew, briefly, what is a HAZOP? So I'm not an expert on HAZOPs, but very, very briefly, it's, it's a, a process by which you assess residual risk in physical processes. So you look at consequences that you're trying to prevent. And for each consequence, you look at the possible causes of that consequence. Uh, you know, someone mistakenly opens a valve. And then you look at the, uh, all of the possible, um, all of the, the, the remediations you have in place. There's, a, I don't know, an overpressure valve, so this boiler gets the pressure too high, the, the, the pressure's released. And you assess the remediation measures against the, the, the consequences, and you come back with uh, a res, uh, an assessment of residual risk. And you produce this report that has basically a line for every consequence, and then uh, you know, all of the, 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 the causes and the measures. And this is the, the, the result of the analysis. So let's talk about what that looks like. So in a security PHA review, what you're going to do is you're going to look at the cause, and you're going to ask yourself, is this cause, could it be hacked um, let's, let's use the word remotely. So if the, if the cause, if it's possible from a remote location to somehow or another open a valve or to flip a switch or to change the zero to a one in a, a PLC, um, if that's true, then that cause technically is hackable. If that 
if that cause is actually the result of someone putting their hands on a valve and mechanically, you know, turning it to the left to open it up, then that can't really be done by changing a bit somewhere. That has to be done physically. That's not hackable. So what we look at is, is the cause hackable? And if it is, then we need to look at the other things, which are the safeguards. And we're not concerned about what the actual scenario is that you're trying to protect at this point, other than the fact that that's a scenario that we need to protect, period, right? That's on the list of things we found out are dangerous. So cause. Then we look at the safeguards and we ask ourselves the same questions about the safeguards. So the safeguards could be um, some simple things or they could be complex things like a safety instrumented system, maybe um, watching the temperature of a tank. And if the temperature gets to a certain level, uh, it's going to issue an alarm and the operator has a period of time to respond. And if that doesn't fix the problem and it gets to another set point or a period of time, um, then it will initiate a shutdown. It will put the process in a safe state. That's actually by design. We build that as a result of the PHA and HAZOP is a way of doing a PHA. And HAZOPs are very common in the United States. So I'm just gonna call them HAZOPs from this point forward. So in the HAZOP, we are actually looking for um, ways to solve that problem and we do it with safeguards. So we may recommend a, uh, we use um, safety integrity levels or SILs and so a safety integrity level requirement, basically, as the number gets bigger, is going to cost more and more money to implement. It's going to be more and more difficult to implement, kind of like when a security level, an SL level, at, in the uh, ISA 62443 standard. So as the security level goes from zero to one to two to three to four, it costs a lot more money and it's a lot more difficult to implement. Same thing's true with SIL. SIL gets very expensive as they go up. So recommending that you go from SIL 1 to SIL 2 has real financial ramifications. And so people are very careful about this, but you do it when, when the risk is high enough and the likelihood is, is significant. So, um, so basically we're saying, look, if, if you can't cause, if, if, if the causes and the safeguards both can't be done remotely, like we described earlier, then it's not hackable. So um, what does remotely mean? Well, remotely means um, it's basically connected to some kind, there's a path through the routable protocols back to the internet. That's what remotely means. Now that may not, it may not go directly to the internet. Uh, it just may go back to an HMI station. It may go to a story and whatever. Um, maybe you have a DMZ with firewalls between your operation and your business uh, or between operations and your IT business infrastructure. Um, but it's still routable in most cases through there if you know the right ports and the right paths. So if, if your cause, back to the actual methodology, if your cause and your safeguards are um, nothing there is not hackable. In other words, everything could technically be hacked. So now you end up in this situation where you almost, it doesn't matter what SIL level it is, it, it could be hacked. And so the net result is, is that this may not be safe. And if it's not safe, then what you're going to do based on the risk criteria that, that you've established, you're going to pick 
a security level um, off of that risk criteria. So this requires that you add a column, if you will, to your risk matrix that says, hey, for uh, when I would normally recommend, we'll, we'll just use some examples. When I would normally recommend SIL 2, we're going to go to security level 3 um, or security level 2. So you're going to make a decision about um, I call it a demarcation point for lack of a better term. You're going to make a decision about when you're going to increase to a to an expensive and harder to implement security cybersecurity system based on maybe one person dying, maybe based on never having one person die, or maybe based on having some multiple people die. So you have to figure out where those lines are long before you start this process. Um, so that everyone's in agreement that, okay, we're going to spend money and go to security level three to prevent death. So if I could summarize briefly, um, the, in a sense, the outcome of the HAZOP is a column in the HAZOP report that has safety integrity levels recommended for each of the, the, uh, the lines in the report. And a safety integrity level is, uh, and it's, it's an assessment of how effective and how reliable, especially, uh, safety equipment is. The higher the level, I think the highest is level three or level four, the higher the SIL level, the more expensive the, the, the solution is. Um, he's saying that once we do the hackability analysis, add a column into the, the HAZOP report that talks about the recommended security level. And generally, higher safety levels demand higher security levels. I think there's four security levels in the ISA. Um, it, it's also known as the IEC 62443 standard. I think especially the 62443 3-3 talks about what are safety levels and talks about security measures that are recommended or required at different security levels. The higher the security levels, the more uh, extensive, the more expensive. Uh, costly, the uh, the uh, the security, the recommended security mechanisms are. So you know, once once we have that, he's going to move into how do you use that uh, assessment going forward. Anyway, what you do is you assign a security level, um, and you move on. Now, what might happen next, in, and I'm going to try and keep this. This is not simple. I'll review it in just a second. What happens next is is um, you're going to move on to the next uh, scenario that you want to look at. You're going to do this all over again. Um, in the end, somebody's going to sit down and look at these security levels, and they're going to go, "Wow, you know, you recommended that we go to security level three, and that's going to cost us millions of dollars to implement, and it's going to affect operations because, you know, now we're basically we have two-factor authentication before somebody can log into an operator control panel or whatever it is, right? And you don't want to implement that level of, of cybersecurity. Then what you're going to do at that point is make a decision about whether you should do something other than implement a higher security level, which is most cybersecurity practitioners, that's all they can think about is I want to implement more protection. Um, and in reality, we agree, but the protection doesn't necessarily have to be cybersecurity protection at that point. So protection could be something as simple as, well, why don't we add a safeguard that's mechanical or electromechanical? Or let's disconnect the routable protocol from that thing, whatever it is, the cause or the safeguard. So just to review, I'm going to look at the cause and ask myself for a scenario, is that cause hackable? Is there a way for me to change the zero to a one? 
um, then I'm going to look at the safeguard or safeguards, and I'm going to look at each one of them and ask exactly the same question I just did about the cause. And if the answer to all of those is yes, then I've got to move on to assigning a security level based on the risk matrix, and then I'll let somebody else decide whether they want to implement that or not, or whether that needs to, you need to look at maybe using an inherent safeguard, um, a, a, a non-routable safeguard. But if the answer to the cause or the safeguards was any of them is no, then in essence, and it's it's serial, right? Those are in line, the cause, the first safeguard, the second safeguard. So if the first safeguard isn't hackable, the scenario is not hackable. If the safe, second safeguard isn't hackable, the scenario is not hackable, even though everything else might be. If the cause isn't hackable, but the safeguards are, Technically, all you can do with a safeguard is prevent it from engaging the cause. So now there's a line here where it starts to get fuzzy and it requires people to have some knowledge about the process side of the industry. So this is where it isn't done in the dark. In the review, you need process safety people to look at the thing and say, hey, I shouldn't um, I shouldn't move on to the next one because just the fact that the cause isn't hackable, the safeguards are, maybe I wanna take a look at that. So there is an area where it gets a little fuzzy. When you look at the blown up operation of it and how you go through each step, there's a little bit more detail, but that's it in, simple, in its simple form. Let me summarize very quickly here. Um, Jim actually went through four scenarios in sort of a grid. If you imagine a grid with uh, causes, whether they're hackable or unhackable, and safeguards, whether they're hackable or unhackable, you've got four possibilities. He's basically saying if your cause is hackable, you can remotely open the valve, and the safeguard is hackable. It's a safety system connected to the, uh, the, the, the control network. Well, you've got a problem. If your cause is unhackable, and your mitigations are unhackable, well, you're good. Um, he said, if your cause is hackable, the valve can be open remotely, and your safety is unhackable, you're still good. Um, you know, the bad guys might be able to uh, cause the problem, trip the plant because the safety shuts you down. Nobody dies. Okay, you're good from a safety perspective. And he says the gray area is if your cause is unhackable. You, you cannot cause this thing remotely, but your safety is hackable. Now a remote attack can impair your safety system. And if the cause ever happens by accident, now you've got a problem because your safety system's been impaired. So in that scenario, that's the gray area where you might have to sit down with the safety people and scratch your head. So, you know, he's got two areas where you're, you're good. If the safety system, if the safety mitigations are unhackable, you're good. There's one where you're clearly in trouble, where both are hackable. And the, the, the gray area was if you've got an unhackable cause but a hackable safety system, you may have to sit down and, and figure stuff out. Okay, but you did, and Jim just did use the word unhackable a couple dozen times, and whenever that word is used, there are sort of alarm bells in my head because I think that one of the themes of our show is sort of that everything is hackable, even if it's not a, a cyber pathway, a router to the internet, even just an idea in somebody's head can constitute the kinds of information that could end up uh, hacking a system. Um, so what do you mean exactly by unhackable when you're talking about this? That's a very good question. And yes, the, the term is confusing. If I recall, 
Jim defined hackable as meaning, can this thing, a valve, a switch, a safety, can this thing be remotely controlled from the internet? He did not define hackable as meaning, can this thing be misconfigured or misoperated by a person with a password in their head and malicious intent who walks up to the thing. He said that was not a hackable scenario where you have to physically walk up and touch the thing. Um, and in all honesty, I missed clarifying this in our interview. So I actually called up Jim. Uh, I called him up again this morning before you and I started recording this as I was prepping for this. And I asked him about air-gapped networks. An air-gapped network is defined as a network that has no way to exchange online information with an outside network or with the internet. Now, if I can go down a tangent for a second, a pet peeve of mine is that a bunch of people recently have tried to confuse this definition. They've tried to say that air gap networks never really existed in the first place because you could always carry information into those networks on mag tapes or on punch cards. I see this as revisionist history. The original definition of air-gapped meant no online connection with an outside computer or network. Offline data movement is always possible into and out of air-gapped networks. But back to Jim. I asked Jim this morning if in his definition of the word, hackable, uh, meant, uh, meant that machines on air-gapped networks were hackable. Um, because nothing on an air-gapped network has an online connection to the internet. And he gave me an answer, and I regret that I, I did not have the recorder going to capture it. But he basically said, no, no. He told me, you know, if he said connected to the Internet meant hackable, then he misspoke. Or it, it may just be that I misunderstood him. In his mind, hackable means connected to a routable network. So if you have an entire air-gapped control system with 700 machines on it, all connected with, you know, together with an Ethernet network, those machines are hackable. This is because, you know, people wandering in and out of the site with laptops and USB sticks all day long. Well, you know, those people have a real chance of accidentally introducing malware to that network. Uh, the malware can potentially cause incorrect control, can, you know, can either cause safety incidents or, or can impair uh, software-based response to safety incidents. But if... Um, I don't know, pick an example. Let's say you had a network of three safety instrumented systems connected to each other with serial links, and that network was air-gapped. I had the sense that he would classify the thing as, as unhackable. But the other thing that Jim did say is that, realistically, most of the sites in the world are not air-gapped. Most of the sites in the world have a path to the Internet. And so the easiest thing you can do is ask the question, is there a path directly or indirectly to the internet from this PLC or from that safety system? And the answer is almost always, yes, there is. And so that means in almost all cases, yes, it's connected and bang, it's hackable. That's, that's the easy question to ask. And, you know, I'm thinking on this, you know, in my experience, most of the world's air-gapped equipment consists of, uh, let's call it, I don't know, singleton CPUs, thermostats, liquid crystal screens on power tools, or, you know, maybe dedicated safety devices not connected to anything. In Jim's terminology, in my understanding, all of those singleton CPUs, those air-gapped CPUs, in his terminology, those devices are clearly unhackable. You talked about safeguards you talked about hackable safeguards and unhackable safeguards can you give me an example of an unhackable safeguard 
Sure. Let's start with one of the more complex ones and then we'll work backwards. Uh, that sounds really backwards. I apologize. But an unhackable safeguard might be something, um, uh, it, it, it might be a motor overspeed switch, right? So um, interestingly enough, as things get as things get more and more complicated in the world we live in, we want to put microprocessors in everything and we want to connect them to everything. There isn't anything wrong with that. Um, I am a huge fan of the microprocessor. I'm a software guy from back when uh, DOS was the operating system or, or I'll name off some other ones and then everybody will say, geez, he's really old. Um, but the taking a motor over, over speed switch and saying, you know what, this thing has a routable protocol in it. Let's go ahead and set it up. Let's set the limits on it and let's not connect it to the network. Um, that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. That becomes a non-hackable safeguard because you haven't connected it to anything. Uh, and that could operate, quite frankly, without updating the firmware or anything else for 30 years. Fine. Um, a more common safeguard might be something like a spring-based pressure relief valve, what they call a direct operated relief valve. Uh, so basically what you have is you have a spring that's holding the valve shut. And if for some reason um, you over the pressure gets too high, there's no decision to be made by a piece of logic, an analog circuit, a cyber or a microprocessor, or anything else. The spring just gives. And when the spring gives, the valve opens and bad stuff goes somewhere. Like for instance, we use these a lot in in chemical and uh, oil in the petrochemical industry. So in a petroleum processing or chemical processing, we use these and we vent to flare, right? So whenever you drive by a facility and you see that bright flame burning on top of the stacks, um, that's a deliberate. We're basically pumping something out there or allowing it to escape there so that it's not a problem somewhere else. And so a spring valve, um, a ruptured disc. A ruptured disc is very similar to um, the relief valve, but the difference is, is that it's kind of a one and done. <laughs> it's one and done, and then you got to go replace the ruptured disc itself. They make buckling pins that do the same kind of stuff. Those are simple things. The overspeed switch we talked about, um, a one-way check valve, right? So a check valve might be, in some cases, a perfectly good uh, cybersecurity tool. Um, we talked about Motor overspeed relays, but uh, motor current monitors also. So instead of instead of uh, letting something overspeed or draw too much current to damage it, trip it. And but you do it without connecting it to the PLC. You do it without connecting it to whatever is do it that could be altered to change the control, the the actual software or the decision. If I can change the set point on something remotely, it's hackable. So we've been talking a lot about safety. I mean, this is the whole point of a, a security PHA. It's all about safety. But in my experience, you know, if you've got a, a $2 billion refinery and it goes down because of, you know, a, a safety trip, it's going to take days, if not longer, to come back up to full production. It costs an enormous amount of money whenever we trip one of these plants. And the purpose of the safety system is to trip the plant if there's an unsafe condition that arises. But in terms of cybersecurity, you know, we see people being very interested in keeping the plant running as well. And you haven't talked about that. 
can you talk about where this methodology fits in sort of the bigger picture of security? Do you know? Do you do this and you're done, or does this fit into a bigger picture? That's a great question. Um, so you are exactly right. Uh, the so we shut down a plant. Um, the numbers we use typically is that most facilities, when you shut them down, you're looking at a million dollars a day in lost operating costs or lost operating uh, expenses. So million dollars a day. And if it takes four days to come back, that's a $4 million hit to the top line and the bottom line of, of an organization that quarter. Um, it could be the difference between staying open and not staying open, right? So the challenge, the challenge is not to shut down in a lot of cases. And I don't disagree at all. Um, there is some thought process that may come out in the future revision of the book where we actually go into more detail about um, how to make decisions uh, around the actual, I, I'm going to put a mechanical pressure relief valve in here. Well, understand, you know, we have, manic, we have mechanical pressure relief valves on the engines to our cars. We call them freeze plugs or blow plugs or whatever you want to call them, but uh, they're there for a reason. And they're like the rupture discs. They're a one and done. And they basically blow a hole in your engine block that is going to take significant repair and time to fix. But the reality is what it does is it prevents your engine block from cracking apart and destroying the entire engine. The same thing's true when you're running a continuous process. But that isn't the end of the story here. So the challenge we have is there is a fine line between making an automatic decision to shut down a plant and letting an operator maintenance and engineering make a decision to shut down the plant that's that's a tough line and you've got to think those things through and that's the part we probably need to write more about in rep 2 if you will or in an addendum or something that we'll put in the book in the future the the process though is not meant to be done isolated from every other cybersecurity effort uh, you should still should do remember we're talking about the industrial control world here you should do something called a vulnerability assessment or a cybersecurity vulnerability assessment but um, you still need to look at you know what are my weaknesses to my system what do I do to protect it I would still implement pretty much everything the ISA 62443 standard says I would go to um, zones and conduits and define try to get my arms around the complexity of uh, the spider web that are networks. Um, but at the same time, understand that what we're trying to protect here with a security PHA review are the things that go boom. So is it expensive to shut down a process? Yes. Is it worth it to shut it down and prevent it from going boom? Yes. I agree completely. I, I guess the the uh, the point that that I thought uh, you know the the, the context I, that that I I thought needed adding here is that often the security program, the cybersecurity program, um, has more objectives than the safety program, and so to me um, this methodology fits into sort of a bigger cybersecurity program, one that's focused on, you know, uh, not letting trade secrets get stolen, one that's focused on, um, you know, keeping the plant up and 
that's focused on not letting anything go boom. You know, there's there's more there's more objectives to the bigger program. This, you know, you, to me, your your solution seems a very good fit for the safety imperative. Um, but to me, it's part of the solution. It's a part of a, a a bigger program, if you wish. I agree completely. If if you did this in and of itself, and you didn't do anything else, uh, as a, as a as a certified cybersecurity practitioner, I would be very upset with you. <laughs> it's not enough on its own, um, but it is, like I said, designed to prevent the thing from going boom. Absolutely. And this is the first resource that I've seen that lucidly describes how to do that. So I'm very happy that you and Ed produced this material. Thank you. Another question. It sounds like digital safety systems get a lot of scrutiny in this methodology. Uh, you know, scrutiny that, uh, that analog or mechanical devices, safety devices, don't need. If we have mechanical safeties, is there any value in having a digital safety system at all? The old way, the mechanical systems, and I, I'm not recommending that we go back to analog technology. I'm not recommending that we go back to pneumatics or anything like that. Not, not at all. However, um, this, this, there are huge benefits to using modern safety instrumented system uh, technology and uh, the devices that are out there. Um, we have to cycle these things periodically. We have to test the signals periodically to prove that it's ready to go and that it'll work if we ever need it for real. Um, that requirement runs the gambit in time. So it might be once every so many months. It might be once every so many years. Maybe you only have to do it during a shutdown turnaround. There are facilities operating in the United States that have been operating for 30 years plus without shutting down, by the way. so. Um, the, the challenge we have is that there are huge benefits in labor and time and quality uh, by using microprocessor-based technology. So I'm a huge fan of that. I'm also a huge fan of making sure we use it right. So the, the challenge is maybe having a balance on those on those things that you're the most afraid of those things that you've looked at that scare you the most in addition to having an sis safeguard maybe you need to have a non-hackable safeguard something like a mechanical device um, in that case there is a benefit to having both uh, it's not universal it, if you told me you had both of your safeguards were connected to your SIS system, then I would just start automatically asking questions about your SIS system. I'd want to do a walk down. I might want to hook up to the network and scan the network and learn more about what's going on, um, what that thing's connected to uh, or potentially connected to so that I know the extent of risk that's there. That's what we're going to do in a vulnerability assessment as opposed to an SPR. But in the, from the SPR perspective, my goal is to protect the things that go boom, right? So hard decision where that line is, but I would never recommend to anybody that they take out an SIS system or not use one. It's just too good not to use. So we've dived into the details here. Pulling back to sort of the higher level, are there benefits to doing a, a security PHA review, an SPR, that we haven't yet touched on? 
a couple things come to mind. Uh, one of them is, um, uh, again, we're trying to protect the things that go boom. So getting a better understanding of the actual attack vector, if you will, uh, to get the things that are of great concern um, could potentially cause real physical damage. Um, the other thing is that uh, the SPR does is it actually allows you to focus on the design you have. So some of the questions we've asked, some of the answers that, or that you've asked and some of the answers that I've tried to provide are a little general. And I've, I've tried to find a couple cases, if you will, where we can identify better. The, the, the challenge we have whenever you try to design a program like this and go apply it, uh, whether it's a vulnerability assessment, um, uh, whether you're trying to do a penetration attack on a facility, whatever it is, you have a script you go down through and, and you follow this methodology. Uh, the challenge is, is that a lot of times the answers, the methods, the results, are very hard to glue together and fit. And so what we did here was we designed a system that's really about um, not violating any, any of the established best practices or the standards, if you will. So there's nothing about a security PHA review that gets you sideways with uh, the ISA IEC 62443 Industrial Control Cybersecurity Standard. There's nothing about an SPR that gets you sideways with the ISA IEC 61511 standard, which is the process safety standard. The thing is designed uh, by people who practice in both of those worlds with the intent that, with the intent of protecting critical parts of the process, understanding the attack better, vectors better, and lowering the risk of a cybersecurity attack causing real physical damage. So, Andrew, that that makes sense to me, right? Very much so. I mean, um, you know, Jim is a a good speaker. He he's given us a lot of useful information. To me, it it, it makes perfect sense. Um, you know the 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 book. I've I've got a copy of it. It's an easy read. All of this stuff, you know, just seems to make so much sense. Um, you know, to me, what what what's surprising is that nobody's written this down before. That this is not, in a sense, second nature. That this is not, you know, something everyone's doing already. Um, it it just it seems so obviously the 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 right way forward for the safety part of. The industrial cybersecurity equation. So, with that said, uh, let's go back to Jim and and see what his parting thoughts are. We like to leave our guests with the last word. Is there a, a parting thought or a, a call to action you'd like to leave with our listeners? Absolutely. Um, the first one is is that uh, I I came out of the Navy in 1988, and one of the last things I did in the Navy was worked on a submarine platform where they put microprocessors into the nuclear power plant control system. And um, the skipper of that boat, the captain, if you will, uh, was very concerned about that. And he assigned me to do um, a type of risk evaluation on the microprocessor technology. And it included things like whether we could maintain it and support it and repair it, whether we had the right talent on board equipment to keep this thing running. Um, and uh, I didn't get into the actual risk of switching to microprocessor technology. And what, what I want to make perfectly clear is that we're not recommending that you uh, automatically stop using technology. As a matter of fact, exactly the opposite. 
um, using microprocessors to improve production, to improve quality, uh, to manage your process better, to take time out of uh, certain tasks to improve the task reliability and the success rate are all fantastic things. And we're not recommending in the least that you ever consider doing that. What we are recommending is that you, you practice good cyber hygiene, uh, you do vulnerability assessment. The time I mean, at least once every five years, have somebody come in and take a good look at your system, not just the IT side, but the, the operational technology side, the industrial control systems too. Um, and, and take a look at the things that you've spent a fortune protecting already that can go boom. Uh, and take a different look at it. Use something like a security PHA review. You don't need my company to help you do that, even though we're more than willing to do it and we do get asked to help companies. You can buy the book and read the book and you'll know enough at that point to go do the work. Andrew, do you have a last word for us? I do. I mean, uh, I very much recommend that people uh, purchase a copy of the book um, it's available on the isa.org website. Um, you know, this is the International Society for Automation, isa.org. You know, enter into the search box, Security PHA Review. When I do that, the top hit has a, a, a little button beside it called Product. Click on that, and it'll take you to the book. Um, it's $89 US for non-members. If you're a member of the ISA, it's $72. That's what I paid. Uh, it's an easy read. It makes you know it, it makes so much sense. Uh, like I said, I, I have trouble understanding why this hasn't been written down before. Um, so go to isa.org uh, is is my last word and uh, and buy the book and and read it and and practice it. Great. That was you with Jim McGlone. I'd like to thank Jim for speaking with you. I'd like to thank you, Andrew, for speaking with me as always. Always a pleasure, Nate. Thank you. I'll catch you next time. This has been the Industrial Security Podcast. Thanks to everybody who's listening. Mm-hmm.